Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 112. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is juggler and photographer, Roger Dollarhide. Before we talk to Roger, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. Of course, that stands for International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Now, drop everything. Get ready to listen to Roger Dollarhide. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 112. Today's special guest is a longtime associate with the IJA, a professional photographer and a hobby juggler who's been around for a long, long time. An old friend of mine, Mr. Roger Dollarhide. Hi, Roger. Hi, good to be with you. Oh, thanks. Uh, I'm catching you where? In Bellingham, Washington. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, we're having some bad weather here. How's the weather in uh, Bellingham right now? Today, right now, it's beautiful, warm sunshine. It has been very rainy, which is typical in this locale. So it's just an unusually nice day today. Yeah, we're having rainstorms, and it's been pretty rainy here in the, in the Bay Area for uh, the last week or so. I know, all over California. Yeah, some places yeah. even washed away or... Uh... They had some real problems with flooding. Yeah. But it's always nice on the Drop Everything podcast. The weather is always fair and fine. And before we get to talk about your involvement with the IGA and your juggling, let's get a little background. Where were you born and raised? I was born in California, San Diego. My parents divorced there when I was five years old. My mother brought my sister, my younger sister and me, back to her hometown, Bellingham, Washington, where essentially I grew up and attended school and college. And then uh, after college here in Bellingham, I live uh, just uh, two miles from my alma mater, Western Washington University. So this is my hometown, but I lived a, a lot of my life in other states when I went on to, for my career. Now, I'm always interested in history. So who was the first president you remember? Did you remember uh, Roosevelt? I don't remember him, but I remember the day he died. I was five years old. I was August 12th, 1945. I was uh, seven, I guess I was seven years old. And I was playing in the backyard and a sound car went by announcing his death. And that was the first time I became aware of uh, what was going on in the outside world. And a sound car was just like a car with an amplifier on it that went through the neighborhood spreading news? Yeah. Oh. That was before, uh, you know, the internet or television and Radio was still extant, but this was a, an important major news break. So, And for your entertainment, did you grow up listening to radio shows? Absolutely, yeah. All, all the big videos. What were some of your favorites? Sky King, The Shadow, Mystery Stories, uh, Comedy, Amos and Andy, Burns and Allen. All the big radio shows that were on in the, four, in the 40s and 50s. Now, of course, there were no jugglers on the radio, but uh, there was one ventriloquist. Did you listen to Edgar Bergen? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. That was kind of a novel idea to have a ventriloquist on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, he had his own show. and It was fun. Yeah, his dummy was uh, Charlie McCarthy, I think. Charlie's McCarthy? Yeah. And uh, and Mortimer Snurd, remember? Right, right. Mortimer, Mortimer Snurd. Snurd. He, was the, he was sort of the, uh, the, the dumber character. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm Mortimer Snurd. Yeah. Something like that. Well, we were one of the first families in Bellingham. My mother remarried, so I grew up in a very nice to upper middle class family here in Bellingham. We had a lot of luxuries. We had one of the first television sets in Bellingham. And uh, I started watching all the early TV shows, which included Captain Kangaroo and, and lots of variety programs that had lots of jugglers on them. What year was the first TV uh, come out? Came out for for 1950s. home use in the nineteen fifties. In the early nineteen fifties, yeah. And do you remember the first juggler you saw on TV, or or one of the first? I can't remember for sure, but uh, it might have been either Rudy Cardenas or the Allegria Brothers on Captain Kangaroo. Yeah, Captain Kangaroo had a lot of, and he lasted a long time. Yeah, and uh, there were lots of other shows. Then a little while later, of course, you had Sullivan Show and all the other big-name variety shows. You know, they all had jugglers on them. And Francis Brunn. Yeah, Francis Brunn, and you also saw him in person. Yes, I did, yeah. But that's later on. So when, we, when you started growing up watching jugglers, what inspired you to learn juggling yourself? It wasn't TV. It was two friends of mine in the ninth grade in school. 
somehow they got it from another kid who was into magic. And he somehow picked up juggling at his very early, you know, just three balls. And two of us other kids picked it up from him. And uh, I carried it to uh, its ultimate uh, conclusion. And the other two guys, one of them died, and the other one lost interest. And why do you think juggling sticks with some people and not with others? I have no idea. I think it's just their basic makeup. Uh, Both of those other fellows were much, much more athletic than I was. I picked it up because I wasn't athletic. I was a typical guy that got the last to be picked on the baseball team, you know, during recess at school. I enjoyed doing it because it was something I could learn that was difficult on my own at home. And it was, it immediately became an absolute fascination with me. Well, we're very similar in that respect. A lot of people, when they see you juggling or when they saw me juggling, they must, they said, oh, you must have really good coordination. And I always felt I was not very coordinated before I took up juggling. And I liked it because it helped me develop my coordination. Yeah, I was coordinated in other ways. And I have it in a very simple formula that I realized I followed. And that is the idea of aiming and shooting. I was, my dad was, my stepdad was a hunter and we, and I was very good at shooting. We went pheasant hunting every summer. He gave me BB guns and a pellet gun and a 22 and a, my own shotgun. And I was very good. And I was a slingshot. I threw knives, I threw spears. The idea of hitting a target was the primary skill that I had. And were there any books in the library that you'd read or other resources besides these two kids? No. And when you saw jugglers come through town, like with the Globetrotters, did you ever try to meet them or just watch them? And Oh, uh... yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I met a lot of them. Remember LMR? He was my main inspiration towards uh, numbers juggling. He could juggle seven rings on a slack wire while spinning a, a, a ring on his one ankle. David Kane has several of my pictures from my collection that LMR gave me when he came through here. He was a fantastic juggler, and I met him back uh, in the dressing room. Uh, they performed at the uh, in the Bellingham High School gym here, and I remember in in the in the men's dressing room in the men's locker room at that time. He showed me, he, he did seven rings and it was the most beautiful sight I've ever <laughs> seen. I, I considered it like a covey of, of doves fluttering up into the air. It was absolutely fascinating. And that's what got me started with the idea of numbers juggling. And what was your best? I know I've seen pictures of you juggling eight balls. Was that your top? Eight rings. Eight, Eight rings. rings also. Did you see the pictures I sent you? Yeah, uh, I sent the pictures. I also watched you on uh, on Ted Mac Amateur Hour. So I watched that, that video as well that's available on YouTube. You know, that was just a very, very brief. It wasn't even an act. It was more like a routine, you know. I had exactly one minute and 31 seconds to do a routine. And they told me what to do. I brought all my stuff to the auditions. They picked out the things that they wanted me to to do on the act and the show. Well, before we get to the TV appearance, when did you start actually doing some shows as a juggler? Very soon, when I was still in high school, and I I was very bad, you know, and, and I was very, very nervous. I entered a couple of talent shows when I was in high school, and I did terrible. Hmm. In fact, the main talent show I did, I have no memory of it whatsoever. And another one I re- do remember and it was just a disaster. But nerves got the best of you? Oh, yeah, it was terrible. I still did a number of, uh, of paid shows as my skills got better. But it turned out the stage fright was so overwhelming that I said, to hell with this. This is no fun at all, you know. I, I prefer to juggle for my own amazement. And what kind of props were available? Uh, did you use Harry Lynn clubs? No, I couldn't afford any of that stuff. I made my own initially. The first balls I ever did were pairs of socks rolled up real tight hmm. with rubber bands. Uh, and I juggled uh, plastic dinner plates that I got at a dime store. And I literally cut up a broomstick into three pieces for, to learn to juggle sticks. And I used those things for, I don't know, a couple of years. 
maybe a year or so. And then I, uh, I had better rings made on the pattern of Harry Lynn stuff. And I bought a cheap set of rings and clubs from a juggler manufacturer at that time who put out, put out real junk stuff. It was terrible. But that's what I started out with. And I think the main thing that, that held up my progress throughout my entire career was that I didn't have the benefit of beanbags. You guys today, the kids today, don't realize the huge, huge benefit they have of not having to chase balls all over the lot, you know, when they're learning juggling tricks. I spent so much time chasing balls and overcoming their weight. I bought a, a set of mall balls to that magic store, and they were big and heavy, but I thought that's all that was available. You know, they're the size of lacrosse balls. Yeah, I used to have a Harry Mall set. They came in a set with a little juggling book. Yep, that's what I used for many years. I learned with lacrosse balls. I think it taught me that it was important not to drop, and I think that's something that helped me throughout my whole career. Well, I, I did a lot. I did a lot more dropping than I did juggling, I'll, I'll tell you. And it held me back for years. I firmly believed that I had, if I had been able to start out with bean bags rather than those heavy mall balls, I could have juggled 10 balls. Well, let me ask you a question. When you look about the juggling records, do you think there should be yeah. a distinction between juggling a ball like a hard ball versus a ball like a bean bag? Absolutely. Absolutely. Although the great jugglers, you know, you know, Ignatov or the guy with Circus Soleil, you, you know, you can't do a big team show with beanbags. You've got to use balls. Of course, they were the greatest jugglers in the world, so they could do it. But uh, it held me back for my entire juggling career. Do you think that juggling balls look better than juggling beanbags? Oh, absolutely. They look better. Yeah, I agree. I think so. Sure. Now, have you tried these new Russian balls? Or not? I don't know how new they are, but the balls that are half filled with a, a seed? or I tried inserting BBs into tennis balls, but they were t tennis balls are a little bit too big. What I eventually went to was golf balls, which are too small, but they have the right density. And so, and I have small hands, so I could hold four, four balls easily, four golf balls in each hand. So that's actually what I learned eight with was a golf ball. And did you do the, the fountain pattern or a multiplex? What was your go-to pattern with eight? I was never able to get past five using Cascade. I, I could do seven a couple times around, but I never did seven with confidence. I could do eight better than I could do seven golf balls because I could do the fountain better. Hmm. Both alternating and unison throw fountains was my main way of juggling eight, six and eight. And did you do multiplex as well, where you threw up uh, pairs of balls? No, I never went into that. I thought that was cheating. <laughs> it is pretty amazing. In fact, that made it. That was, that was a big uh, brouhaha at one of the early uh, uses of my competition because uh, some jugglers wanted to do multiplex and uh, call it the same as seven. You know, they wanted to do we wanted to throw two at a time. I said, absolutely not. You, the main guy that tried to do that was not too happy. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. That's that, once again, that's sort of cheating in a way. It's not. Uh, I guess you you are using the the juggling and they're all in the air at some time, but uh, yeah. to be able to, to stop and catch more than one at a time sort of yeah. uh, seems to me to be against the rules of, of competitive juggling. Yeah, and I'm pretty much of a purist, so I wrote the rules originally. Pretty strict rules, and uh, and uh, while I was running the competition for the first ten years, I was pretty strict on who could do what with what. Well, let's talk about juggling get-togethers. What were there any kind of get-togethers when you were juggling as a as a kid? Any kind of festivals or? Absolutely not. What was the first year you got involved with uh, with the IJA? Yeah, I started corresponding with lots of jugglers. Once I joined the IJA in 1956 and got the newsletter. I used to write regularly with Harry Lind, uh, Ken Benz, a guy in Australia, and a guy in uh, Hawaii. And uh, I wrote let letters to a lot of jugglers over the years. But the very first convention I ever saw was the one that I myself organized in 1968 in California, just not a few miles from you, 
because the 1968 convention at that time had been canceled due to a lack of registrations. And I went back east and talked with the, with the powers that be at that time, and I got permission to sanction an official IJA 1968 convention, and it was held in the backyard of juggling friends of mine. 35 people were there, uh, very few of whom were actual IJA members, but that was the first convention I ever saw. Oh, it's interesting that so you actually organized the first festival you ever went to. That's yep. pretty impressive. And the next one was 69 in Los Angeles, and that was the first time that my uh, competition rules were, were inaugurated. And it's been a huge success ever since. Uh, this is 68, 69, but you did the Ted Mack uh, Amateur Hour in 1962. Correct. How long did you have a professional career? Was it pretty short-lived, or was the Ted Mack kind of the highlight of it? It was spread out over a number of years. Someone would ask me to do a show, you know, and I would do it. And I, I somehow I, a, a talent agent in Portland, Oregon, found out about me. And she hired me to do a few county fairs here in, in the northwestern area. And I did those, and, and it was just a terrible disaster. I did so poorly, I was ashamed of myself. So after that, I I pretty much stopped doing shows. Do you think because it, it was it mostly the nerves again, or were there other reasons that you didn't like performing? Yeah, it was a, a stage fright. It was terrible. Well, I, was, I did one county fair, uh, not too far from it, the Skazza County Fair which is a major local county fair. And they had a big stage and a, and a grandstand and everything. And there was a hypnotist on the show. And he tried to hypnotize me to calm me down, and he couldn't do it. I was just an absolute nervous wreck. And how long of a show did they want in those days? Did they want an actual 20 or 30-minute performance? Oh, no, no. It was like five to seven minutes, I think, as I recall. Yeah, because now at the fairs, it's a bit longer. Yeah. You know, I would do a quick... Uh, three, four, five ball routine and uh, a ring routine and a three and four club routine. Then I'd uh, uh, do some ball spinning and some plate spinning. Then I'd get on the unicycle and juggle uh, three clubs or three tennis rackets on the unicycle to finish, just like I did on the Ted Mack Amateur Hour. And I just dropped stuff all over the place. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough, especially when you're not doing comedy. Were you, did you ever talk on stage or was this always to music? I tried talking a couple of times, and uh, that didn't work out either. I wasn't a good talker. I was hired to do a nightclub show, one of the very few times I ever did an actual nightclub show. And it was a disaster. Uh, they wanted me to be the MC also. And I had nothing. I couldn't figure out anything to say. And the, uh, the I was on with a stripper. And uh, they kept, uh, you know, hooting and hollering at me. Bring on the stripper. Bring on the stripper. <laughs> <laughs> but you did go into teaching as a profession. Yes. Were you more comfortable in front of the classroom and talking to the students? Yes. Yeah, I was. Because I was confident in my material. I'd gone to four years of college. I don't consider myself a true intellectual, but I'm a semi-intellectual. I like knowledge. And uh, I like subject matter, science and math and related subjects. And uh, so, yeah, and I enjoyed the public speaking aspect. I've had opportunities to get up in front of audiences and do public speaking, and I enjoy that. I always look forward to doing that, just like I look forward to uh, this current interview. I had no qualms whatsoever about doing this interview. Oh, good. Well, good. I'm glad because you've, you've listened to a lot of my interviews in the past, and uh, I know you, you sometimes will write me emails and comment on them, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. You also were an accomplished unicyclist. When did you, started, when did you start unicycling? The same time as I did juggling. One of the kids uh, had already gotten a unicycle. There was a bicycle shop here in town uh, uh, which made unicycles because there's an annual spring festival here in Bellingham, uh, and they put on a big parade every year. They don't do it as much anymore, but uh, back in those days, in the 1950s, they put on a big parade, and the bicycle shop, made unicycles and other weird contraptions like uh, uh, bicycles made out of bedsteads, you know, and and other weird contraptions to advertise their store in the parade. And so uh, 
my these other kids uh, and I learned to ride unicycles to be in these parades. And we rode all over the place. We we rode in the Seattle Seafair Parade. We rode in the Pacific National Exhibition Parades up in uh, Vancouver, Canada. And uh, I did that for quite a few years. You started taking photos of the other jugglers who performed at the World's Fair. I did. They were performing in shows that were on at the World's Fair, including Francis Brunn, a great juggler that probably nobody's ever heard of named Bobby Smith. I don't really remember too many others. But yeah, I took pictures. I had a summer off. See, I was a school teacher. Oh, okay. So I went to the fair a number of times with my camera, and uh, which I had bought specifically for taking pictures at the World's Fair. It was just a junky Argus C3 camera, if you remember that. It was the worst piece of junk ever <laughs> produced for a 35-millimeter camera. But I bought it used at the downtown camera store. The World's Fair also had a photo contest. And I entered the contest, and I won a small, very small prize. I won a tripod for one of the categories, and that sent me on my way. I tell you, I, I was off and running after that, not just taking pictures of jugglers, but for anything I could find. I, I had no idea how visually oriented I really was until I bought that camera and uh, started just going all over the country taking pictures of anything. You went to the World's Fair purely as a spectator, just to take pictures of the jugglers and not to perform. Correct. I went there not just to see the jugglers, but to see the World's Fair. It was a marvelous spectacle. It was, uh, you know, even Elvis Presley made a movie at the Seattle World's Fair. It was a big, big thing here. And, you know, they got the Space Needle was built for the World's Fair. It was a marvelous thing. Yeah, I did some research on the World's Fair because, of course, I've heard of them. And I always wondered how come it still doesn't go on, or at least doesn't go on in the United States. The last one in the U.S. was 1984. So it's been quite a while since we've had a World's Fair. Yeah, well, you know, television sort of put the kibosh on that, as well as lots of other forms of entertainment. Do you think photography has something to do with this idea of aiming? Like you said, you'd like to, to shoot? Ab absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. That is a culmination of my talent. And I do have a talent for, for aiming and shooting. First, I was throwing knives and and uh, spears and uh, slingshots and gun shooting guns. And then it was uh, taking pictures. I had a juggling too. Yeah, it seems like a natural progression. Yeah. Now, when you saw a juggler like Francis Brunn, you took photos. Were you trying to capture particular moments or we just take a bunch of them? Or are you looking for certain things that when they performed to take that perfect shot? I didn't necessarily. I took a few pictures of the performance, but, but I tried to get backstage and talk to them before the show or after the show, as soon as I could. And I met a lot of jugglers that way. And Francis Brunn was one of the first. He performed not only in a show at the World's Fair, but he performed in another uh, water show in Seattle just a few weeks before the World's Fair opened. And uh, my wife and I went to that show, and the only camera I brought was her camera, which is just a, a little plastic brownie camera. You probably you might remember, though, just a, a very simple snapshot Kodak brownie camera. And I got backstage. Somehow I was able to talk my way backstage uh, after the show, not before. And he was very, he was very nice. He was a wonderful guy. And he let me take pictures of him doing tricks. He did a number of tricks. Not he didn't do his whole act. Sure. But he did a number of his tricks strictly for Kay and I, my wife, on, in the area behind the stage. And he was a wonderful guy. And then I met him again when he was at the World's Fair. And then I met him again uh, a couple of other occasions when he was performing with the uh, Harlem Globetrotters. That's nice to know how accommodating he was and how much uh, time he took with you uh, just as a fellow fellow juggler. Yep. And uh, I, I met many, many jugglers that same way. I Come to think of it, I think one of the, the first juggler I ever met, I remember now, his name was Alfonso Loyal Rapensky. And he came from a very family, a very famous European equestrian family. And he was a broken down old man who did a juggling act, which was quite good, 
considering how old and, and uh, decrepit he was, <laughs> I have one picture of him that I took. I wasn't even good at taking pictures of performances at that time, but I got a picture, a really nice color slide of him. I, I graduated the color slides by that time, and uh, I still have that photo, but he's not juggling. He's holding one of his horses. Back in those days, of course, this might seem like a stupid question. Obviously, did you develop your own film, or how did you get your photos developed? Color. It was all color. But did you do it like in a dark room, or did you have to send them away somewhere? No, I didn't. I, I've never developed a color image in my life. I would take handfuls of slides. The, the day I bought that, that cheap camera, even before I got to the World's Fair with it, I went out in Seattle. They were building the I-5 freeway at that time, right through the middle of downtown Seattle. And the very first pictures I ever took with a 35 millimeter camera was pictures of construction of I-5 in downtown Seattle. And I was burning up film like crazy. And I would take hands full of film back down to the camera store to be sent out for processing. And I spent thousands and thousands of dollars over my life shooting 35 millimeter slides. Yeah, people nowadays, it's, it's totally different with the digital cameras and the ability to take oh. a photo and then send it to somebody or, or post it. There's no comparison. Absolutely no comparison. So much easier nowadays. I never got a darkroom. I never did darkroom work until years later. I took a course on darkroom work when I was living in the Bay Area a few years after the World's Fair. And uh, I took a darkroom course for the Seattle or for the San Francisco Photography Club, had uh, dark rooms that you could rent and, and take courses for. And then when I went into business myself in 1975, I had to have my own dark room because most of my assignments were in black and white, and I couldn't afford to have processing done then. So I uh, built my own dark room. And so uh, I have it in my notes that you moved to the Bay Area in 1965, and what was the yeah. juggling scene like in the Bay Area at that time? Fantastic. That's why I moved down there. Homer Stack was the center of attention in the Bay Area. You remember, did you ever meet Homer Stack? No, but he was a very well-known name. I, I came here a little Absolutely. after his time, but everybody talked about Homer Stack. Absolutely. Well, that's the reason. See, my wife divorced me. We were only married three years. and She decided, well, it was complicated. I'm not going to go into why we divorced. But my wife divorced me. I continued teaching in Seattle for another year. And then I decided I wanted to move to the Bay Area to be with all the juggling down there. Because mm. there was nothing happening here in Bellingham or in Seattle, for that matter. So uh, I, got a, I got a teaching job in uh, the Bay Area. I went down there on my spring break one year in 1965. Got a teaching job right away because they were looking for exactly... What I was doing was a science and math teacher. I happened to walk in walk in on a board meeting, a school board meeting, that was looking for an eighth grade science and math teacher. <laughs> Perfect. And that's exactly what I was. <laughs> Great. And I got up there. They asked me up to the interview. And uh, it was the best public speaking gig I ever did in my life. I walked in the door and I said to myself, it's showtime, baby. Hmm. And I aced that interview perfectly. And I, they, they gave me the job on the spot pending consideration of my school transcripts, which I had to send them. And they approved those and sent me a contract when I was still back in Seattle. And uh, I moved to uh, Bay Area at the end of the school year. I had taught five years in Seattle. What other jokes do you remember in the Bay Area at that time, uh, in addition to Homer Stack? Oh, my God, there Oh, there were so many. They were coming through in droves. Bobby May was a very good friend of Homer's. And uh, uh, Ron Hannon and uh, uh, Jess Bonnefelt. Well, before you move on, did you spend any time with Bobby May? Uh, did you get to meet him? No, I, I would be there when he, when Bobby May was visiting. And uh, Homer would have dinner with a few of us. And I was oftentimes invited. And I have lovely pictures that I, that I took, camera on tripod of our dinners. And it was usually uh, Bobby May and his wife and uh, a couple of other local jugglers, uh, including me and Homer's wife, who was a very, very lovely lady at that time. And Homer had a small 
grassy backyard. And I'll tell you, I, I can't even count all the jugglers that came through that area. But once, oh, the Rudenko brothers, they were good friends with Homer. Remember the Rudenko brothers? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen pictures. They were fantastic jugglers. Fantastic team juggling acts. Some of the best I've ever seen. And what was Bobby May like as a person? I only met him once when he was quite, quite older. Yeah, I, well, that's, he was old then, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was an old man. He what? wasn't performing anymore. Very sweet. Oh, he wasn't performing anymore. Yeah, he was an old man. Oh, I see. Yeah, I remember I said one thing to I said one thing to Bobby May. I was at a the juggling festival in uh, I think it was Cleveland, where I believe is he lived, and Kit Summers was there, and uh, he was walking with Bobby May, and he they walked by me, and Kit said, "Oh, this is Dan Holzman. He's a, a really good three ball juggler," and Bobby May looked at me and said. Which way is the cafeteria? And I, <laughs> I, and I pointed it out, and that was it. <laughs> that was my well, one interaction uh, with Bobby May. Bobby May did come to the Youngstown IJ convention, where he met the very young Anthony Gatto. I don't know if you remember that. I remember the, remember the picture. Was that was that one of your pictures of the two of them meeting? That was my picture. Yep. That's a very famous picture in my memory. Uh, I was the official IJA photographer at that time. And uh, I got a, a great picture of Bobby May with uh, Anthony Gatto when Anthony was like, what, 10 years old or so. Yeah, he's kind of leaning down to him and, and uh, Anthony's just a little boy. That's exactly it. And uh, Bobby May is quite old at that time. And it's, it's, it's yep. kind of a touching photo. It's, it's poignant. It is. And it was in the IJA newsletter at the time. And uh, yeah, I took that picture. Because you left teaching and you became a professional photographer. Why did you leave teaching? There's a lot between teaching and being a professional photographer. I quit teaching because I decided that I did not want to spend my career babysitting obnoxious eighth graders. <laughs> okay. I uh, decided to try uh, retail, retail management. And I signed up with the a thrifty drugstore chain there in California. They were regularly hiring um, store manager material, you know. Yeah. And they had stores all over the all over the West Coast at that time. And uh, so they were always hiring uh, management trainees. And so I went through their uh, nine-month uh, on-the-job management trainee program. And then I ended up uh, being an assistant manager at a couple of stores, uh, Redwood City, and then, like I mentioned to you earlier, at the Antioch store. And it turned out that I hated that also, because as an assistant manager, my job was to catch shoplifters. Uh, I had my own area of the store that I had to do the merchandising for, and you had to wait on obnoxious customers. And that was that was just as bad as teaching these graders. So I, I was with the Thrifty for only, uh, I think, less than three years, two or three years. And I quit that. And uh, went to an employment agency to find something better. And the employment agency hired me to be an employment counselor. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you must you must do well in interviews. That's good. I aced that interview just like I aced all my other job interviews, or most of them. And uh, unfortunately, I had very, very bad luck. The, the first few guys that I got very good jobs for, they were all fired. Like there were three of them in a row that never lasted in their jobs. And I became so depressed. And, and it was a, basically a sales job. And you're working on commission, you know. Right. If the people that you got jobs for didn't make money, I didn't make money. Oh, okay. And so my supervisor at the employment agency got me an interview with the Hartford Insurance Group, which had a major office in on California Street in San Francisco. I went in there and interviewed them, and I aced the interview again. They had another management training program that they were running for several different areas of the company. And uh, they, I, I passed three very serious interviews because this was no Mickey Mouse outfit. They hired only highly qualified not people necessarily with insurance backgrounds, but people with just a good, solid background education, which I, I had and I had a number of years of other work experience. 
and I aced those interviews, and they hired me, and I worked for the Hartford Insurance Group for a total of seven and a half years after that, eventually ending up being transferred to a, a very nice job in the home office in Hartford, Connecticut. After working in a couple of their regional offices, the first one was in Santa Ana, California, and the second one was in St. Louis, Missouri. And then uh, I got transferred to uh, the home office. So you went from teaching to thrifties, which had great ice cream, yep. as according I remember. I, was, I knew yep. them because they had five cent uh, ice cream cones. Yep. And then insurance, and then finally photography. How'd you go from insurance to photography as a professional? Well, I was doing photography all those years, starting with the World's Fair. I had never stopped taking pictures, except briefly when I was really involved in my my new jobs. Once I got to the home office, I had a built-in clientele of 4,000 fellow employees in this huge, two big, huge office buildings in downtown Hartford. And I started doing weddings. I came. I, I made the brilliant realization that the best way for me to break into being a professional photographer, since I was good at people photography, was to do weddings. That was that. That's the the, the biggest and best photography training ground any people type photographer can have. And I started doing weddings for the local photography studios. And I started doing them for uh, girls in the office. The uh, company, the Hartford Insurance Group, had an employee arts and crafts show every year. So all the employees that did different things like, uh, you know, women would do needlepoint or whatever. There were lots of painters and uh, there were even a few other photographers. And, And they had this big arts and crafts show every year. And I won first prize in the photography category two years in a row. And that just that just solidified my reputation. Right there, I, start, I just hit the ground running doing weddings. And then at a certain point, you kind of transferred from a, the insurance to becoming a full-time photographer? Is that, is that correct? Yep, in, in 1975, I quit my job. There was a lot of professional photography going on in those days. The economy was booming. And there was lots of photography work. And there was a photographer who was literally on campus taking pictures of our new computer building. And I walked by him on my lunch hour one day and stopped to talk to him. And he turned out to be my mentor. And he, he guided me through my early career as a professional photographer. Not only was he doing freelance photography work himself, but he taught a course in commercial photography at the local community college at that time, which I took. And then he was also the head of the photography department, not at the Hartford, but the, but the Aetna Insurance Company, which is right down the street from the home office of the Hartford. And he would hire me. I, I was good enough that he actually hired me to do professional jobs for him for the Aetna. And the Hartford maintained me as as one of their main photographers, even though they had their own photography department too, because I was a natural. It just turned out to be a perfect thing for me. So I started doing work for all the insurance companies in town. The Hartford, the Aetna, the Travelers, Connecticut Mutual, the Hartford Steam Boiler Insurance Company. I, and I just hit the ground running. One day I realized I was very unhappy doing the work I was doing uh, for the insurance company. And I just up and quit one day. I gave them notice. And uh, they knew they knew I was unhappy there. Even my boss hired me to do his daughter's wedding. <laughs> that's, that's the high opinion they had of me. But he knew that I was not happy working in that department. And so he let me go with no complaint. Built my own dark room in my apartment. I had a few thousand dollars saved up. There was no looking back. Would you say uh, photography was your calling then? That was your that was your thing. Absolutely. And how did you become the official photographer of the IGA? And did you did you uh, contribute to the magazine when we had our magazine? Absolutely. 
the very first convention I went to was the 1969 convention in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And the official photographer for the IJ at that time was an old man who was a professional printer. And he took all the pictures from the beginning of the IJIA. And I can never remember the poor guy's name. He was a very sweet old man, but he was retiring. And he literally turned the job over to me. And he said, I don't want to do this anymore. I've seen your pictures. You do a wonderful job. You can have the job. And I wasn't even elected to it. I, uh, he, he just turned the job over to me. And that was in 1969 uh, in Los Angeles. I was the official photographer for 10 years after that. And then I quit. We have had a long involvement with the IJ. You even were good friends with some of the founders, like Art Jennings. Can you tell us a little bit about Art Jennings? Art Jennings, when I was still living in uh, Seattle, teaching school, Art Jennings was doing school, school assemblies. And he came through my hometown area. And uh, I came up on a, uh, on a weekend to meet him. And uh, I traveled around with him for several days. I don't remember how I got the time off. Maybe I, I'm kind of, kind of a blank on the time element there. But I spent uh, several days with him, traveling around with him. I drove my own car, but he had that big pink Cadillac. He and his wife, Carol, <laughs> drove around, okay. pulling an Airstream trailer. You're probably familiar with that. And we, we became just wonderful friends. He was the sweetest guy you would ever want to meet. Did you ever meet Art Jennings? Oh, yeah, many times. He was also a very good artist, so but you had that in common because he was a good painter. Yeah, absolutely. He was a graphic designer, too, also. He designed the IJA logo. Oh, did he? That's interesting. He designed uh, ships. Designed what? Ships? Ships. Uh, oh, metal, oh, ships. Metal ships. I remember he showed me a model once. I don't know how, but uh, I think he designed uh, the interiors of, uh, of metal warships, if I remember correctly. But he, yeah, he was a very, very talented man and just a wonderful, wonderful guy. I only saw him perform once, but he mostly did like a kind of a tramp clown act. Is that correct? Yes. Collie Happy Days, it was called. Full tramp uh, outfit. Yeah. You remember he started like on a, on a park bench? Yep. Juggling three clubs. Yep. When I was with him, he would travel around to the local schools, which were booked ahead of time, of course. And he would do as many as four shows in one day. He would take off his makeup between shows oh. for some, for, in some cases and then have to quickly put it back on again when he got to the next school. I don't remember why he did that, but there was some reason that he had to, had to do it. Maybe he was too sweaty or something at the end of a show. I don't remember. But I, went, I followed him around for, for a few days. So I got to see his act a number of times. Well, that must have been fun. Uh, yeah, he was a character. Uh, I enjoyed yeah. his company. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the most enjoyable experiences of my juggling career. But I had many, many others. I spent much time with, like I said, Homer Stack. I had uh, many, many good opportunities to meet many, many jugglers. But getting back to the Bay Area, there were lots of circuses coming through at that time, you know. And... uh Ken Benj and his wife, Carol, were working on a small circus. And I went to visit him once. And Ken Benj talked up the circus owner, John Strong. Remember John Strong's circus? Uh, John Strong's circus, yep. Yeah. He talked me up to John Strong. And John Strong wanted to hire me to go on the show with Ken Benj. And I said, no, thanks. (laughs) Uh, By that time, I was through performing. Yeah, I met Ken Benj quite a few times, too. He was a great guy. Well, Ken Benj was the inspiration for my deciding to write a juggling competition. Okay. We were at a juggling get-together at the home of Danny Reese in Los Angeles. He used to put on a, uh, an annual summer get-together in his big yard in Los Angeles called a juggle-in. Do you remember those? I remember the name Danny Reese, but I never attended a juggle-in. No. Well, he was a professional juggler. He was sort of a knockabout comedy juggling act, but he put on this uh, thing at his home. His wife cooked food, and uh, jugglers came from all around the area, Southern and Central California, to attend these get-togethers. And I sent you the picture of Bill Talent and I juggling the five balls together. That picture was taken at one of Danny Reese's get-togethers, the same one 
which I, I stood and watched 10 men's juggle. And we would, that's what we would do. One guy would do a little routine, you know, would show off his favorite tricks, and people would stand around and watch. And I said, you know, th- th- there ought to be a greater opportunity for people to see jugglers like this, not necessarily in a show, you know, where they have to pay a stage show, but people ought to be able to come from the local area and see jugglers uh, compete with each other. And Ken Benz was the inspiration for that because he was a great, a very fine juggler in his own right. And that's what inspired me. And I sat down and Danny Reese's kitchen table that very afternoon, along with Danny and a friend of his who was an accomplished uh, springboard diver. So he was a very high, highly skilled springboard diver. And they have competitions, you know. They, sure. they have rules that they have to follow to do their diving. So the three of us knocked out this set of rules. And uh, later on, I went back home, wrote the rules out in more detail and added all my ideas and uh, printed them up and uh, brought them to the 1968 convention. I wrote them in 68. We didn't do them. This was after the convention I had in 68, mm-hmm. I believe. But I presented the rules at the 69 convention that was held in a hotel in Los Angeles. And everybody said, hey, yeah, that's an interesting idea. And they they were a big success from day one. Yeah, that's a good piece of history that the first IGA convention uh, competitions were 1969, and you were the one who wrote up the rules. Correct. Did you, you broke things into different uh, categories, right? Different prop categories? Yes. There was pretty extensive rules. But there was ball juggling, there was club juggling, and then there was auxiliary equipment juggling, where you could juggle on a unicycle or a rolling globe or a rollerbola, whatever you want. And uh, there was a, I think there was a ball spinning category also. And then there was a numbers juggling, where people would were in the numbers juggling, uh, competed. And I think people were starting out with six balls or six rings at that time. And the the, the guy that won most of the prizes the first, first year was George Zillack, whose stage name was Foodie, mm-hmm. who happened to be appearing in L.A. with the uh, Ringling Brothers Circus at that time. And he came to the 69 convention and he wiped everybody out, of course, because he was a, a highly skilled professional numbers juggler. So he won most of the prizes the first year. Yeah, I'm proud to say he's a friend of mine on Facebook. He's still alive oh. and still uh, oh, really? doing well. Yeah, foodie. Where is he? You know, I'm not sure, uh, but I see pictures of him. He looks great. And I'm really proud that he's a, a friend on Facebook. I, I don't really converse with him, but whenever his name comes up. And also when you mentioned Bill Talent. That's another person that was very important to me because I remember I had a picture of him. I had never seen him juggle, but I remember seeing pictures, and I just remember being very uh, taken with that name, you know, Bill Talent. He was very popular in the 1940s and 50s uh, at the end of the vaudeville era. He was beginning of television, but he was still, he was mainly a club juggler, a club act, I believe, at that time. Did you do a trick where he threw an egg up and caught it on the plate, though? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess that was maybe more of a common trick, but there was like a a series of photographs showing him throwing the egg up and catching it unbroken on the plate. And that always impressed me. Yeah. Well, that's not a hard trick. I know, but Uh, at the time when I was coming up, I thought that was an impressive, impressive stunt. I tried to uh, really get uh, the, the individual prop category competition started up again. I didn't realize that you were the one who had that idea initially, because I always felt that was the way that a juggling competition should be held. That when you have all these different types of props competing against each other, it's really unfair, especially, I think, to the toss jugglers. Exactly. My original concept was as a sport competition, strictly sport, just exactly what the World Juggling Federation ended up doing a few years later. However, I want to state categorically for the record right now, I am perfectly happy with the way the competition has evolved. Perfectly happy with it. I think it's better than the World Juggling Federation as a spectator entertainment 
and competition. It appeals to far more people than the Federation ever will, and that my whole idea originally was to present a sporting competition that the masses would want to watch, like in the Olympics. But it would not. It did not turn out that way, and I'm perfectly happy that it didn't, because it would never get into the Olympics. I don't think juggling. It'll be a long time before even the WJF's competition will ever be accepted into the uh, the Olympics. I'm sure. I am very happy with the way other people develop my rules, and I think they're a huge success. That's my life's legacy is two things. One, my invention of the IGA competition, and two, all the wonderful photographs that I've taken during my life. I think one of my favorite photographs is the one of Ignatov doing 11 rings. That's right. That I've seen in a lot of different books. And uh, it's, like I say, that was very inspiring to me when I was uh, a young juggler. Well, that was in 1972. And at that time, the only people that were juggling more than nine were Russians, you know, who were graduates of the Russian Moscow schools, uh, circus school. So 11 rings at that time was pretty unique, especially in, in, in America. That picture was pretty unique for a number of years. Now, of course, you see pictures of, of teenagers doing 12 and 14 rings and 13 balls. So it's not as unique anymore. But during its run, my picture was printed in many, many books and magazine articles. Well, I think doing it in a show, like as, as a performance, I don't yes. think that's been matched many times. Uh, I don't believe no. Gatto did it. I mean, but when Ignatov did it, and he, his appearance was very inspirational. I remember uh, Paul Bachman telling me about that because he also saw that performance. I met Paul Bachman. He was a wonderful guy also. And the picture that I took, See, Ignatov arranged ahead of time with the circus management to let me sit on the curb, the ring curb, and take that picture of his act. I photographed the entire act. I got official permission to be right up there, and I had two cameras with me, fully loaded with motor drives, high-speed motor drives. And he deliberately slightly muffed the first try with the 11 rings, but I got them going up. Mm. And being an experienced juggling photographer and being very lucky, the first camera, I rattled off an entire roll of film in, you know, in just a couple of seconds. And then he gave me the nod. He was going to do it again. I grabbed the second camera all ready to go. And he did it again and successfully caught them all. And from those two runs of two rolls of 36 exposure, 35 millimeter color, 200 ISO ectochrome uh, film, I got one perfect pattern from each roll where all the rings are separated. There are no occultations of each other in either of those pictures. And his position, his bodily position is also perfect in both of those pictures. And I sent him prints back to Russia when I had them printed. And he wrote back to me in a letter saying those are the best pictures he, anybody had ever taken of his 11-ring trick. Yeah, it's classic, and I do remember that fact that a lot of times when you see uh, ring juggling, they kind of bunch up, and sometimes they even obscure each other. And that one, every ring is clear. It's a beautiful photo. Yep, and very few juggling photographs of big numbers are that perfect. It's just very hard to do. Yeah, I agree with you, too, about the competitions. I think as a stage competition, I think having it the way it is makes it a great entertainment. Absolutely. I think the judging is a little difficult because it's hard, like I say, to compare apples to oranges. But I think the WGF kind of made a mistake by eliminating more of the entertainment aspect of it. That wasn't their idea at all. That was He had the same idea as I did, that it was not for, well, I take that back. It was for entertainment purposes. Sure. But uh, it was basically the same type of rules that he has. You know, you didn't have to wear a costume. Right. You didn't have to have music. You didn't have to smile. It was strictly serious business. And I had the idea that people would want to watch that. Well, I was probably wrong. <laughs> well, I think it's more like ice skating, I think, in that, you know, having the costuming and the smiling and the movement around the stage and the music, I think that's would be more that would bring in the audience than just pure juggling, even though we love juggling so much. Exactly. That's why juggling, skill juggling will not be in the Olympics and ice skating is. 
Yeah, I also think because it's such a smaller activity. I mean, even yeah. now, we have trouble getting people to compete. The competitions have had very pretty poor attendance lately. Do you think there's something we can do to get more people interested in competing? I had the same trouble. At the beginning, there were very few people who wanted to try out this new thing. I would cajole people. You know, they didn't even have anything prepared. I said, just do something, you know. Uh, in the beginning, it was very crude. And uh, I even had trouble recruiting judges, including Harvey uh, Burgess. He did not like the idea at all. But uh, I knew that he would be a good judge. You know, he was an accomplished juggler himself. Did you ever know Harvey Burgess? Yes, I've, I've met him quite a few times. He's another very interesting uh, yeah. a guy. I like talking to him. He's, he's fascinating. Well, he was a real sweet guy, and but I had to cajole him into agreeing to be a judge. And I got a couple of other guys, and no girls. Absolutely, for several years, I could not convince any of the uh, girls slash women to compete. But once they did, then they started winning prizes themselves. And one year, the Fargo, the 1975 Fargo Convention. Mm-hmm. Were you around at that time? Uh, I think Fargo was 1980, I, unless there was two of them. There was two of them. Was there? Okay. I went to the second one. That was my first. The first one was uh, 75 or 70. 75 might have been in Florida. I don't, I don't remember. But anyway, the very first Fargo Convention was one of the first largely attended conventions also, where there are more than 100 people attending. The winner that year was a young girl baton twirler. She juggled six batons for crying out loud. It was a fantastic act. So she qualified and the numbers juggled. Well, I think nowadays, if you look at it, I think I always thought that, that uh, you know, as far as the breaking it between men and women, it really wasn't necessary because the best female jugglers have equaled or surpassed yeah. a lot of the best male jugglers. Okay, I did not discriminate between men and women as long as they were old enough. You know, I had a juniors competition also from the beginning, hmm. where, where kids that have been juggling for three years or less. You know, that was a well, I also had a, a team uh, category. So I think there were 11 different categories. Yeah, they still, have the, they still have the juniors, but they do it by age now. I think the problem with the three years, I remember that's how it started when I first went, is you could be a certain age or have only been juggling three years, is a lot of people kind of fudged what that meant. Like I learned 10 years ago, but it was only a serious two years ago. Yeah. So I think by age is a better way to separate the juniors from the seniors. Well, uh, last year, not this last summer, but the year before, I was invited by the people that ran the convention to be an honorary judge. And I, I'm not able to travel anymore, so I had to turn them down. But they sent me a copy of the rules. And uh, they're even longer and more complicated than they were when I originally wrote them. But I thought they were... Terrific. I had no complaints whatsoever with any of the new rules. I think they're wonderful, and I think it is proven by the success of the competition. Many, many people have built their entire careers on being prize winners in the IGA competition, don't you think? Well, I think it's a great way for me. I came up through the IGA. I came up through competing. I met my partner through the IGA. You know, I've been involved in the competitions and festival directing and directing the shows. I got so many great experiences through the IGA. And you definitely have left your mark. I mean, not only uh, with the the rules, but also with your great photography. Yes. And I think uh, you will always be remembered as a very important part of uh, our organization, the IGA. Yeah. And I want to thank you for that. Well, my big complaint with the photography is I oftentimes don't get credit for my photos. I know they've been used in some books and they didn't maybe uh, credit you or give you some kind of compensation. And that's, I think that's unfair. Did you ever meet Carl Heinzeson? Oh, yes. (laughs) He stayed at my house. I've met him. I've stayed at his apartment in Berlin. He's a very uh, interesting character. He stayed at my house for a few days once, too. And uh, the books are wonderful, you know. I have no complaint about the quality of the books, but uh, I don't think I ever got any any credit for any of the pictures of mine that are in there, which are several. Well, that's too bad. I know that uh, the one thing I know about Carl, <laughs> that our, the, he likes to stay at people's houses. Like he'll stay. Yeah, well, he's like, I spend six weeks with Gato. Then I spend six weeks with Cremo. Well, that's a fun thing to do. Other, other people do that also. I'm into mathematics a little bit also. 
You, did you ever meet Ron Graham? Oh, no, I, I've heard the name. Ron Graham was a very world-renowned, I mean, literally world-renowned mathematician. And there was there's another world-renowned mathematician who is literally homeless. He spends his entire life going from one mathematician's home to the other, <laughs> visiting and doing doing mathematician work. Well, it's nice. It's nice that I say that jugglers spend time with each other. And Carl has been a, a, a good friend. And so he's another person that's yeah. definitely contributed a lot to juggling over the years. Absolutely. Absolutely. With his books. Yeah, with his books. He wasn't a juggler or an educator himself, but he put out many, many wonderful books. Well, there's very few people who are that much in love with juggling, the history of juggling, you know, juggling as a, as a, a hobbyist or juggling as a just a devotee of the, of the activity. So the people we have in our community that maybe they're not great jugglers themselves, but who love juggling that much and support it, I think we need to appreciate and and thank sure. with their with their involvement with juggling as well. It's always a struggle to keep the interest up. The the IJ has gone through ups and downs over the years, uh, which is how I got started. At one of the worst downs ever, when the comp- when the convention was canceled in 1968. And I took over, and that's what that was the beginning of my serious involvement. And eventually, uh, named as an honorary life member, along with only seven other people in the history of the organization. That uh, you know, that's what got me started. Was at the worst downturn ever, but there have been other downturns also. Well, it's nice I'm able to have you on the podcast. That's interesting. Again, that you're one of the only uh, eight or seven or eight life members. That's quite a quite an accomplishment as well. The reason they stopped uh, naming life members and honorary, not life members, but honorary life members, is that they started paying people instead. See, this that was all, and thanks for many years of hard volunteer labor. Mm. See, I never got paid a penny for any of the work I did ever. You know, I was a championships director. I was a photographer. I was a newsletter editor for three years. I organized three annual conventions, so all of that added up to a lot of work. And I never got a penny for it, and neither did a lot of other people. And so they started paying people to do, you know, once things really got into a business uh, aspect. And uh, so the, the, whole, the whole process of naming honorary members stopped. Well, I hope this podcast will give you more credit and give you some appreciation for all that you contributed to the IGA. And now you're living in Bellingham and uh, now you're retired. When did you retire from photography and, and what are you doing now? I uh, My photography business went belly up in 1975 due to a severe economic recession in the area. And I literally lost all my clients and I went broke. The only way I could see to survive, I didn't even have time to try to look for another type of job or more more clients, I packed up my belongings and came back to Bellingham to start all over again. That was in 1994. I, I, I arrived back in Bellingham. And I, uh, I started doing other work. I ended up driving a yellow cab here in Bellingham for seven and a half years. And then I had a heart attack in 2003. And that's when I quit working completely. And now if people want to contact you, would you be interested in having other jugglers contact you, young jugglers? Is there a way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, email. Just give them my email address. That's all I have to do. Okay. And you'd be interested in corresponding with young jugglers who, who want to uh, know more about you? If they want, yeah. Yeah, I, I do a lot of emailing. That's my biggest. I spend most time either watching TV or emailing friends. Yeah, I'll be happy to, to hear from anybody. I've emailed lots of people over the years. And let's end our podcast with a couple of mottos you have. I, I know that one of your mottos is, uh, or I think you're, the motto I read about was, be prepared and have yes. fun and see how long it lasts. Is that is that what you live by? Yeah. The greatest book I ever read was Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. Self-reliance. Be prepared for life that comes to you. And... Uh, be an individualist. That's exactly my my main life's motto. Well, thanks for sharing your time here with our listeners at the Drop Everything podcast. I'm glad we had a chance to catch up. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about your uh, creation of the 
IGA competitions and all the great photography you had for the IGA and your involvement with this organization for so many years. And I'm glad they appreciated you with an honorary life membership. And thank you so much, Roger Dollarhide, for being a guest on the Drop Everything podcast. Thanks, Roger. Great to be with you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 112 with special guest Roger Dollarhide. If you want to correspond with Roger, you can email him at rogerdollarhide at comcast.net. That's R-O-G-E-R-D-O-L-L-A-R-H-I-D-E. All right. Now go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.